The accounts from the life of Hazrat Usman are being mentioned. Hazrat Usman performed the pilgrimage of Hajj approximately a year before his demise or when the disorder had reached its peak. In any case, when Hazrat Usman performed his last pilgrimage of Hajj, the rebels had started to openly create disorder. And Hazrat Amir Muawiyah was greatly concerned about this. Hazrat Muslimaud states that on the return from Hajj, Hazrat Muawiyah also accompanied Hazrat Usman to Medina. And after having stayed there for a few days, when he was about to depart, he met Hazrat Usman in privacy and stated that it appears that disorder is growing and if you permit, may I submit something in this regard? Hazrat Usman stated that go on. Upon this, he said that my first proposal is that you accompany me to Syria as it is peaceful there in every respect and there is no disorder whatsoever. I fear that if disorder suddenly arises, we may not be able to make arrangements at the time. Upon this, Hazrat Usman replied that I cannot leave the neighbourhood of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, under any circumstance, even if my body is torn to pieces. Hazrat Muawiyah then stated that my second proposal then is that you grant me permission to send a contingent of the Syrian army for your protection and no one shall be able to make mischief in its presence. Upon this, Hazrat Usman radiallahu replied that neither can I burden Baitul Mal, i.e. the treasury, to such extent in order to safeguard the life of Usman, and nor can I tolerate putting the people of Medina to difficulty by maintaining a military presence. Upon this, Hazrat Muawiyah submitted that my third proposal is that you send off the companions to various countries because in their presence, people possess the courage to assume that if you do not remain, someone else may be put forward in your stead. Hazrat Usman replied 
that how is it possible for me to scatter those whom the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has gathered? Upon hearing this, Hazrat Muawiyah began to weep and submitted, If you do not accept any of these strategies which I have proposed for your protection, then at least announce to the people that if any harm comes to me, then Muawiyah shall possess the right to retaliate on my behalf. Perhaps people shall refrain from making mischief in fear on this account. However, Hazrat Usman replied that Muawiyah, what is to happen will surely come to pass. But I cannot grant this permission since you possess a stern disposition. Hazrat Usman said to Hazrat Muawiyah that he possessed a stern disposition and may treat the Muslims harshly. Thereupon, Hazrat Muawiyah stood up weeping and said, I fear that this may be our last meeting. And when he stepped outside, he said to the companions that the fate of Islam rests upon you. Hazrat Usman has now fallen very weak and disorder is escalating. Please do look after him. After saying this, Muawiyah set off for Syria. With regards to Hazrat Usman radiallahu's great courage and resolve, Mujahid narrates that Hazrat Usman radiallahu peered from inside his house and addressing the rebels he stated, O my people, do not kill me, because I am the leader of the time and I am your Muslim brother. By God, irrespective of whether my understanding about a matter was correct or not, I have only ever strived to ensure reform to the best of my ability. Remember, if you kill me, you will never be able to gather together to offer prayers collectively, and nor will you be able to set out for jihad together, and neither will you distribute wealth in a just manner. The narrator states that when the rebels who had besieged his house refused to pay heed, Hazrat Usman anhu then stated, that I ask you in the name of God, when Amir al-Mu'mineen, Hazrat Umar anhu passed away, at the time you were one and were established upon the faith, did you not pray in the manner that you did, i.e. for Khilafat? But now you are effectively saying that your prayers were not accepted. Or perhaps you wish to say that Allah the Almighty no longer cares for his faith. Or you claim that I attained this, i.e. Khilafat forcefully at sword point, or usurped it, and that this was not given to me after mutual consultation of the Muslims. Or perhaps you believe that during the early stages of my Khilafat, Allah the Almighty was not aware of the matters relating to me that He is now aware of. However, this cannot be the case, as Allah the Almighty knows everything. However, when the rebels refused to accept this as well, Hazrat Usman radiallahu prayed that, O oh Allah, take note of them and destroy each and every one of them and do not spare even a single one from among them. Mujahid further states that whosoever took part in this rebellion, Allah the Almighty destroyed every single one of them. Abu Layla Kindi narrates that I saw Hazrat Usman radiallahu when he was under siege and he peered from an opening and stated, O people, do not kill me, and if I am at fault for anything, then give me respite so I can repent. But I swear by Allah, 
If you kill me, you will never be able to congregate to offer prayers together, and nor will you be able to counter the enemy as one. Indeed, in such a case, you will then quarrel with one another and always be at odds with one another. The narrator states that Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu used his fingers to indicate this. Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu then said, وَيَا قَوْمِي لَا يَجْرِ مَنَّكُمْ شِقَاقِي أَنْ يُسِيبَكُمْ مِسْلُ مَا أَسَابَ قَوْمَ نُوهٍ أَوْ قَوْمَ هُودٍ أَوْ قَوْمَ صَالِهٍ وَمَا قَوْمُ لُوتٍ مِنْكُمْ بِبَعِيدٍ That is, O my people, let not your hostility towards me lead you to this, that there should befall you the like of that which befell the people of Noah, or the people of Hud, or the people of Saleh, and the people of Lot are not far from you. Hazrat Usman anhu then sent a message to Hazrat Abdullah bin Salam. When Hazrat Abdullah bin Salam came, he asked Hazrat Usman what his opinion was on what was happening. Hazrat Usman anhu replied that refrain from fighting, refrain from fighting, because this will be more favorable for you with regards to distinguishing the truth. Muhammad bin Siri narrates, that Hazrat Zaid bin Sabit Ansari came to Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu and submitted that the Ansar have gathered at the door and are saying that if you permit, we are prepared to become Allah's Ansar, i.e. helpers of Allah for the second time. Upon this, Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu stated that do not fight under any circumstance. Hazrat Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala anhu states, that on Yawm al-Dar, i.e. the day of the siege, I went to Hazrat Usman anhu and said, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, the situation warrants that you raise the sword against the rebels. Hazrat Usman anhu stated, O Abu Huraira, would you like to kill everyone, including me? I said, no. Hazrat Usman anhu then said, By God, even if you kill one person, it is as if you have killed everyone. Hazrat Abu Huraira radiallahu ta'ala anhu relates that he subsequently returned home and did not partake in the battle. As mentioned before, that he stated that it was time to raise the sword. Hazrat Abdullah bin Zubair narrates that on the day of the siege, he submitted to Hazrat Usman, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, wage war against these people, because waging war against them has been made lawful for you by Allah the Almighty. Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu replied, By Allah, I will never wage war against them. The narrator states that they made their way inside and at the time Hazrat Usman was fasting. Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu had appointed Hazrat Abdullah bin Zubair to guard his door and said, Whosoever wishes to obey me, he should follow Abdullah bin Zubair. Hazrat Abdullah bin Zubair states that he said to Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, you have a group of people here in your house for your protection, who have the support and help of Allah the Almighty, and they are fewer in number than the rebels. Grant me permission to fight against these rebels. Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu replied, that I say to you in the name of Allah, that no person should shed their blood for my sake, and nor should anyone else's blood be shed for my sake. Then, with regards to the conflict and discord before the martyrdom of Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu and the incident of his martyrdom, Hazrat Muslim Aud radiallahu ta'ala anhu writes, 
that since the rebels had apparently gained victory already, they sent someone to Hazrat Usman anhu again as a final strategy to have him resign from Khilafat. They felt that if he resigned himself, then the Muslims would have no authority or opportunity to punish the rebels. In other words, they would have no opportunity to punish the rebels. When the messenger reached Hazrat Usman anhu, Hazrat Usman stated, I have refrained from vices even in the days of Jahiliyyah, i.e. the era of ignorance prior to the advent of Islam, and have not violated the injunctions of God after accepting Islam. Why and for what crime should I leave the office which God the Exalted has conferred upon me? I shall never remove the garment which God the Exalted has clothed me with. The messenger returned after hearing this reply and addressed his people in the following words. He stated, By God we have fallen into grave trial. By God we cannot escape the clutches of the Muslims without killing Usman because in this case the government would topple and its administration would crumble and there will be no one to question them. But killing him is no way permissible. In other words, their only solution was to kill Hazrat Usman anhu, but they knew that it was not permissible. Thus, not only do the words of this person highlight the anxiety of the rebels, but they also established that Hazrat Usman anhu had still not allowed anything to arise which the rebels could have used as an excuse. In their hearts, the rebels knew that killing Hazrat Usman anhu was not lawful under any circumstances. Hazrat Abdullah bin Salam arrived when the rebels were plotting to assassinate Hazrat Usman anhu. Hazrat Abdullah bin Salam was greatly revered within his tribe, even when he was a disbeliever, and the Jews believed him to be their chief and a peerless scholar. He stood at the door and began to admonish the rebels, and he forbade them from killing Hazrat Usman anhu. He stated, O people, do not draw the sword of God over your heads. By God, if you draw the sword, you will never find an opportunity to put it back in its sheath. Conflict and discord amongst the Muslims shall never end. Pay heed, for today the government punishes criminals by the whip. Generally, lashing is the penalty for a criminal offence in the Islamic penal code. But if you kill this man, i.e. Hazrat Usman then the state will not be able to maintain order without the sword. In other words, people will be killed for petty crimes. Keep in mind that the angels are the guardians of Medina at this time. And so if you kill him, then the angels will desert Medina. The benefit that the rebels derived from this warning was that they drove off Abdullah bin Salam, the companion of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. In addition, they taunted him with reference to his previous faith, saying, O son of a Jewish lady, what have you to do with these matters? It is a shame that the rebels remembered that Abdullah bin Salam was the son of a Jewish lady, but they forgot that he had accepted Islam at the hand of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Furthermore, the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was immensely pleased when he converted, and he too stood by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, in every hour of difficulty and suffering. Moreover, the rebels also forgot that Abdullah bin Sabah, their leader and instigator, the person who declared Hazrat Ali anhu to be the wasi of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, i.e. the claim that Hazrat Ali was meant to be the first Khalifa after the demise of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, 
and presented him in opposition to Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu, was also the son of a Jewish lady. In fact, Abdullah bin Sabah was a Jew himself and was only outwardly expressing Islam. And so, disappointed by the rebels, Hazrat Abdullah bin Salam left. And the rebels, upon noticing that it was difficult to murder Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu by entering through the door, because the few people who were present on guard there were bent upon killing or dying, and so decided to assassinate Hazrat Usman by jumping over the wall of a neighbouring house. As such, with this intention, a few rebels jumped over the wall of a neighbouring house and sneaked into the room of Hazrat Usman. When these people entered, Hazrat Usman was reciting the Holy Quran. After the siege had been laid, day and night, the only occupation of Hazrat Usman was to offer prayer or recite the Holy Quran, and he would pay no attention to any other work. In those days, the only other task that he performed before the rebels penetrated the house was to appoint two men in order to guard the treasury. Because on that night, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, appeared to him, i.e. Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and stated, O Usman, break your fast with us this evening. After this vision, Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu was convinced that he would be martyred that day. Hence, taking his responsibility into account, Hazrat Usman ordered two men to stand guard by the gate of the treasury so that no one would attempt to loot the treasury during the chaos and mischief. When the rebels reached inside, they found Hazrat Usman reciting the Holy Quran. Muhammad bin Abi Bakr was also among the attackers, and due to the power he commanded over the rebels, he considered it his duty to be at the forefront of everything. He thought that since he was the son of Hazrat Abu Bakr, therefore he held a superior status and considered it his duty to be at the forefront of everything. And so, he advanced and took hold of Hazrat Usman by his bed and gave it a violent tug. In response to this action of his, Hazrat Usman only said this much, that, O oh my brother's son, if your father, Ali Hazrat Abu Bakr had been here now, he would never have done such a thing. What has happened to you? Are you displeased with me for the sake of God? Are you angry at me for anything other than the fact that I have made you fulfill the rights of God? In other words, all that Hazrat Usman said was that they ought to fulfill the rights of God. Upon this, Muhammad bin Abi Bakr turned back in shame. However, the rest of the rebels remained there. Since definite news had been received that the army of Basra would reach Medina that night, and this was their last opportunity, the rebels had decided that they would not return without completing their mission. And so one of them advanced and struck the head of Hazrat Usman anhu with an iron rod. Then he kicked the Qur'an which was placed opposite Hazrat Usman anhu. The Holy Qur'an when tumbling towards Hazrat Usman anhu, and drops of blood fell upon it from his head. What to talk of dishonouring the Holy Qur'an, the virtue and honesty of these people became fully exposed by this event. The verse upon which the blood of Hazrat Usman anhu fell was a magnificent prophecy 
that was fulfilled in its own time with such grandeur that a person who possessed even the hardest of hearts closed his eyes out of fear after beholding a glimpse of his blood-stained words. The verse was, فَسَيَكْفِيكَهُمُ اللَّهُ السَّمِيعُ الْعَلِيمُ That is, Allah will surely avenge thee against them, for he is all-hearing, all-knowing. After this, a person by the name of Sudan advanced and desired to attack Hazrat Usman anhu with a sword. When he made his first strike, Hazrat Usman anhu shielded himself with his hand and his hand was cut. Upon this he said, By God the Exalted, this was the first hand to write the Holy Qur'an. After this, Sudan made a second attack in an attempt to assassinate Hazrat Usman anhu, but his wife Naila moved forward and stepped in between. This evil person, however, did not even hesitate to strike a lady and he attacked and her fingers were severed. After this, he made another attack upon Hazrat Usman and severely wounded him. Then, in the thought that perhaps he had not yet died and may survive, when Hazrat Usman was writhing in agony and felt unconscious due to the pain of his wounds, this wretched person immediately took to his neck and began to strangle him. And he did not release the neck of Hazrat Usman until his soul departed his physical body and flew to the heavenly world, eagerly accepting the invitation of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Surely to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. At first, overwhelmed by the horror of this scene, the wife of Hazrat Usman was unable to speak. She finally called out for help and the people sitting at the door rushed inside. However, any help was now useless. What was to happen had already taken place. When the freed slave of Hazrat Usman saw the blood-stained sword which had been used to martyr Hazrat Usman in the hands of Sudan, he was unable to restrain himself. He advanced and severed the head of Sudan with his sword. In turn, one of Sudan's associates killed him. Now the throne of the Islamic Empire was empty of a Khalifa. The people of Medina deemed further efforts to be futile and all of them returned to their respective homes. After martyring Hazrat Usman the rebels began to terrorize the members of his household. The wife of Hazrat Usman desired to move away and when she left, a wretched person from among them passed a most vulgar remark to his associates about her. Undoubtedly, for a respectable man, no matter what religion he belongs to, it is difficult to even fathom that the rebels would express such foul views at a time when they had just martyred the foremost pioneer companion of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and his son-in-law, and the king of the Muslim empire, and then the Khalifa of the time. However, their indecency was so immense that no evil deed was beyond them. These rebels were neither in pursuit of any good objective, and nor did their party consist of righteous people. Some of them were admirers of the deceptive, anti-Islam, strange and peculiar teachings of Abdullah bin Sabah the Jew. Others were fascinated by the concept of excessive socialism, rather Bolshevism. Some were criminals who had served sentences and were looking to spill out their animosity, while others were robbers and bandits, who saw this conflict as a means of fulfilling their ends. In short, their indecency is not surprising. As a matter of fact, 
it would have been surprising if these people had not behaved in such a manner. While the rebels were pillaging and plundering, another freed slave could not restrain himself when he heard the screams and cries of the household of Hazrat Usman anhu. And so the slave attacked and killed the person who had killed the first slave. At this they killed him as well. The rebels even took off the jewellery worn by the women and then left the house laughing and mocking. On another occasion, regarding the vulgarity and impropriety of those that murdered Hazrat Usman anhu, Hazrat anhu states, Just look at what they did. They martyred Hazrat Usman anhu, and whilst he was lying in a pool of blood, writhing in agony, the murderers were passing vulgar remarks about the wife of Hazrat Usman anhu by commenting about her body. Their actions then became even worse. In other words, not only towards Hazrat Usman anhu's wife, but worse still, Hazrat Muslimaud anhu states that they began to pass vulgar remarks about Hazrat Aisha anha. Hazrat Muslimaud anhu states that upon hearing these things, I say that Allah the Almighty has granted me a lofty position for which I am honoured. But it is my heart's desire that if only I were alive then instead of now, I would have obliterated them all. Look at the extent they fell. As mentioned earlier, they removed the hijab from Hazrat Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha and upon seeing her they commented that she was a young woman. They did not even refrain from passing remarks about Hazrat Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. Hazrat Muslimaud radiallahu ta'ala anha states that from the treatment meted out to Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anha, it is evident that Hazrat Usman was not fearful in the slightest of what they would do to him. It is proven from history that when the rebels had overtaken Medina, before the prayers they would spread out inside the mosque and kept the people of Medina separate from one another, lest they gather together to resist them. But despite all the discord and strife and a general atmosphere of hostility, Hazrat Usman anhu would come to the mosque alone for prayers and would not be fearful in the slightest. He kept on coming to the mosque until a time he was stopped from doing so. When the discord worsened and the rebels attacked the house of Hazrat Usman anhu, instead of Hazrat Usman asking the companions to stand guard around his house, Hazrat Usman anhu pleaded with them in the name of God to not place their lives in danger by protecting him and then ordered them to return to their homes. Thus, does a person scared of martyrdom act in this way and tell people not to worry for him and instead for them to return home? Thus, this proves that Hazrat Usman was not fearful of being martyred.
Then, another irrefutable proof that Hazrat Usman radiallahu was not afraid of martyrdom is that as mentioned in the beginning of the sermon, that when the discord had begun, Hazrat Muawiyah came for Hajj. And when he was about to return to Syria, he met Hazrat Usman radiallahu in Medina and stated that come with me to Syria, there you will be safeguarded from any discord. Upon this, Hazrat Usman radiallahu replied that Muawiyah, I will not like to leave the neighborhood of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, at any cost. Hazrat Muawiyah then said, If this is not acceptable, then grant me permission to send a contingent of the Syrian army for your protection. Hazrat Usman radiallahu replied, For the sake of my protection, I will not let the provisions of the Muslims be diminished. Hazrat Muawiyah then said, O Amir al-Mu'mineen, these people will deceive you and kill you or declare an all-out war against you. Again, Hazrat Usman radiallahu replied that I do not have any concern for this. My God is sufficient for me. In the end, Hazrat Muawiyah said that if you do not accept anything, then at least do this. The evil and seditious people place their false hopes in certain prominent companions. They believe that after you, these companions will be able to look after the affairs. Subsequently, they try to deceive the people by using their names. You should remove all of them from Medina and send them off to different lands. And in this way, the ploys of these evil people will be stopped, as they will think what need is there to fight with you, knowing that there is no one to take command of the matters after you. However, Hazrat Usman did not accept this either. And as was mentioned earlier, he said, And how can I scatter those whom the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, has gathered? Upon hearing this, Hazrat Muawiyah began to weep, and stated that if you do not wish to do any of these, then at the least make an announcement that Muawiyah will be responsible for exacting revenge for you. Hazrat Usman radiallahu stated, Muawiyah, you have a stern disposition, and I fear that you may treat the Muslims harshly. Therefore, I will not make such an announcement. Thus, it is alleged that Hazrat Usman radiallahu was weak-hearted. But tell me, how many people can display such courage? And after reading these events, can anyone say that Hazrat Usman radiallahu was fearful? If he was fearful, then he would have said to send a contingent of the army for his protection, and that he, Ayy Hazrat Muawiyah, need not to worry about their salary, as he would take care of it. And if Hazrat Usman radiallahu was fearful, he ought to have announced that if anything were to happen to him, they should know that Muawiyah will exact revenge for it. But Hazrat Usman radiallahu said nothing, aside from that owing to Muawiyah's stern disposition, he feared that he may treat the Muslims harshly if he was given this authority. Then, when the enemies jumped over the wall and launched an attack, Hazrat Usman continued to recite the Holy Qur'an without any fear or dread, to the extent that one of the sons of Hazrat Abu Bakr, may Allah have mercy on him, stepped forward and grabbed hold of Hazrat Usman's beard and gave a forceful tug. Hazrat Usman looked to him and said, O oh my brother's son, if your father was alive today, you would have never done such a thing. Upon hearing this, his entire body began to tremble and he left out of embarrassment. Then one of his accomplices stepped forward and struck the head of Hazrat Usman radiallahu with an iron rod, as was mentioned earlier, and kicked away the Holy Quran that was there. When this attacker stepped aside, 
Another person stepped forward and martyred Hazrat Usman anhu with a sword. Thus, reading these incidents, who can say that Hazrat Usman anhu had even an iota of fear? Hazrat Muslim anhu states that the promised Messiah والسلام, advent took place in the same manner as the advent of Prophet Noah, Prophet Abraham, Prophet David, Prophet Solomon and the other Prophets. And after the promised Messiah the institution of Khilafat was established just as it was established after the Prophets who appeared in the past. And if we carefully ponder over this and try to delve into its true reality, we will come to realize that this is an extraordinary institution. In other words, the institution of Khilafat. In fact, I say that even if 10,000 successive generations of an offspring were to be sacrificed for its sake, it will amount to nothing in comparison. I cannot say for others, but at least when I study the history from the time of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and read about the troubles and afflictions Hazrat Usman anhu was made to endure, and on the other hand, the faith and the spiritual light which the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, had instilled within him, then I say that even if 10,000 generations from my future offspring in this world were all to be gathered and sacrificed at once so that this disorder could be quelled, then I would deem this to be akin to the proverbial expression of purchasing an elephant in exchange of a lice. In other words, this act of sacrifice would be even less than giving something extremely small like an insect and in exchange acquiring an elephant. The fact is that we only realize the true value of something much later. It was only after the martyrdom of Hazrat Usman anhu that people realized the true importance of the institution of Khilafat. Hazrat anhu further states, After Hazrat Umar anhu, the gaze of all the companions fell upon Hazrat Usman anhu for the office of Khilafat. And thus he was appointed for this task through the consultation of the eminent companions. He was the son-in-law of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and two daughters of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, were wedded to him one after another. When the second daughter of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, passed away, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that if he had another daughter, he would marry her to Hazrat Usman as well. This shows that he held a special rank of honour in the sight of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. He held a very unique position in the sight of the people of Makkah and was a wealthy man according to the circumstances of Arabia at the time. After Hazrat Abu Bakr accepted Islam, one of the people to whom he particularly chose to preach the message of Islam was Hazrat Usman. The view of Hazrat Abu Bakr with respect to Hazrat Usman did not prove false and only after a few days of preaching he accepted Islam. In this manner he joined the As-Sabiqoon al-Awwaloon or that pioneer group of Islam which the Holy Quran has praised in admirable words. The degree of honour and respect that he possessed in Arabia can be understood from the incident that when the Holy Prophet journeyed to Mecca on the basis of a vision and the Meccans, blinded by their malice and enmity, refused to grant him permission to perform the Umrah. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, proposed that an esteemed person should be sent to the Meccans to negotiate the matter. 
When Hazrat Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu was selected for this, he submitted that, O Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, I am prepared to go, but if there is anyone in Makkah who can negotiate with the Meccans, then it is Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu, because he holds special regard in their eyes. Hence, if someone else were to go, there cannot be as much hope for success in him as opposed to if Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu went. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, also considered this view as being correct and subsequently sent Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu for the task. It can be understood from this incident that Hazrat Usman radiallahu ta'ala anhu was looked upon with special honour even by the disbelievers. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, held a great deal of respect for Hazrat Usman. On one occasion, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was lying down when Hazrat Abu Bakr anhu arrived. But the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, remained lying. After some time, Hazrat Umar anhu arrived. But again, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, remained lying. When Hazrat Usman anhu arrived, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, instantly adjusted his clothes and stated that there is a great deal of modesty in the disposition of Hazrat Usman and it is in consideration of his feelings that I have done this. Hazrat Usman anhu was one of those rare men who had never consumed alcohol and had never approached adultery even prior to accepting Islam. In the country of Arabia, where drinking alcohol was thought to be a source of pride and adultery a daily indulgence, these were qualities, i.e. to abstain from these ills, which could not be found in more than a handful of people before Islam. Therefore, Hazrat Usman was no ordinary man. He possessed very high moral qualities. With respect to worldly rank, he was exceptional, and he was the foremost in Islam. The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was very pleased with him. And Hazrat Umar has declared him as being amongst the six men who up to the demise of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, held his utmost pleasure. Furthermore, he was from among the Ashra Mubashara, meaning he was one of those ten men regarding whom the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, had given glad tidings that they would enter paradise. Regarding the day in which Hazrat Usman radiallahu's martyrdom took place, it is said that he was martyred on 17th or 18th of Zulhijjah, 35 Hijri, on a Friday. According to Abu Usman Nahdi, Hazrat Usman radiallahu was martyred in the middle days of Ayyam al-Tashriq, i.e. 12th Zulhijjah. And according to Ibn Ishaq, Hazrat Usman was martyred 11 years, 11 months and 22 days after the martyrdom of Hazrat Umar radiallahu and 25 years after the demise of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. According to another narration, Abdullah bin Amr bin Usman relates that Hazrat Usman was martyred at the age of 82 after the Asr prayer on Friday 18th Zulhijjah 36 Hijri and he was fasting on the day he was martyred. According to Abu Mashar, Hazrat Usman anhu was 75 years of age at the time of his martyrdom. Then, in relation to the arrangements of Hazrat Usman anhu's burial, Niyar bin Mukram relates that it was a Saturday between the Maghrib and Isha time when Hazrat Usman anhu's body was carried by four of them, including Jubair bin Mutim, Hakim bin Hizam and Abu Jaham bin Hazafa. Hazrat Jubair bin Mutim led the funeral prayer and Muawiyah has confirmed this narration. These same four individuals went down into the grave for the burial 
According to one narration, Hazrat Jubair bin Mutim led the funeral prayer of Hazrat Usman anhu with a congregation consisting of 16 people. Alama ibn Sa'd states that the first narration is more correct, i.e. that the funeral prayer was offered by four people. Abdullah bin Amr bin Usman relates that Hazrat Usman anhu was buried in Hashe Kokab on a Saturday between Maghrib and Isha time. Rabi bin Malik relates from his father that the people would desire to bury their departed ones in Hashe Kokab. Hash means a small garden and Kokab was the name of an Ansari who owned this garden. This garden was situated very close to Jannatul Baqi. Hazrat Usman bin Affan anhu would often say that very soon a righteous man shall pass away and he will be buried there in other words, in Hashay Kokum, and people will also do the same. Malik bin Abu Amir relates that Hazrat Usman anhu was the first person to be buried there. There is another narration in regards to Hazrat Usman anhu's burial that for three days the mischief-makers and rebels did not allow Hazrat Usman anhu to be buried. It is written in Tariq al-Tabari that Abu Bashid Abdi related that for three days Hazrat Usman anhu's body was left without a grave or shrouded in cloth and was neither allowed to be buried. Later, Hazrat Hakim bin Hizam and Hazrat Jubair bin Mutim spoke to Hazrat Ali with regards to Hazrat Usman's burial and that if he could ask the family of Hazrat Usman to give permission to bury him. And so Hazrat Ali anhu asked and they gave permission. And when the rebels came to learn of this, they gathered stones and stood along the way. A few members from the family of Hazrat Usman anhu accompanied his funeral and wanted to enter an area in Medina known as Hashay Kokab, where the Jews would bury their dead. When the body of Hazrat Usman anhu was brought out, they, i.e. the rebels, pelted stones at the charpai which was carrying his body in order to cause it to fall down. When the news of this incident reached Hazrat Ali, he sent a message to them and cautioned them against doing such a thing. Upon this they stopped and the funeral went on until Hazrat Usman was buried in Hashe Kokub. Later, when Amir Muawiyah assumed authority, he ordered for the walls of the graveyard to be taken down so that it merged with the graveyard of Jannatul Baqi. He also instructed the people to bury the departed ones close to the grave of Hazrat Usman anhu, and in this way the graves of this area joined the graves of other Muslims. And according to other historical sources, it is also mentioned that Hazrat Usman anhu bought this area of land and included it as part of Jannatul Baqi. There are a few counts that still remain, which God willing I will relate in the future. I will be leading some funeral prayers in absentia today and will mention some details in relation to them. The first is of Molvi Muhammad Adris Tero Sahib, who was serving as a missionary in Ivory Coast and passed away in the night between the 27th and 28th of February after suffering from a short illness, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Verily to Allah we belong, and to Him shall we return. The deceased was originally from Ivory Coast, 
and after acquiring his early education, he went to Burkina Faso. And along with his secular education, he also learned the Arabic language. He accepted Ahmadiyyat in the 1980s. And in 1983, of his own accord, he travelled to Pakistan. And after completing his studies from Jamia Ahmadiyya, he went on to serve as a missionary in Ivory Coast. He also served in Ghana and Burkina Faso. And from 2007, he was again serving in Ivory Coast. And the deceased was Omusi. The account of his travel to Pakistan, which he narrated, is very interesting. He purchased a plane ticket with whatever little money he had saved and travelled to Pakistan. He neither informed the Jamaat in Ivory Coast nor the Jamaat in Pakistan from before. Upon arriving, as he left the airport, he was very worried but then saw an individual who approached him and asked him where he had come from and where would he like to go. He didn't speak any English or Urdu but they communicated with each other in a few brief sentences in Arabic. In any case, this individual then took him to the Ahmadiyya hall and then told him that my wife had seen a dream the night before that a foreigner was coming as a guest. Therefore, she told me to go and bring you. This is the reason why I came to the airport and when I saw that you were the only foreigner to get off from the plane and seemed worried, Therefore, I realized that you were that guest who my wife saw in her dream. Therefore, in this way, Allah the Almighty himself made arrangements for him and he would often narrate this incident and he would say that throughout the whole journey he was constantly praying and even upon arriving. And this was a miraculous sign owing to his prayers that Allah the Almighty made the arrangements for him and also showed a dream the night before to the wife of that Ahmadi in Karachi informing her about his arrival. Thereafter, he was taken to the Ahmadiyya Hall and then to Rabwa. In any case, he was a very pious man and devoted to his worship. Then Qiyum Pasha Sahib, who was serving as the missionary in charge of Ivory Coast rites, where they worked together in Burkina Faso as well for three years and then also had the opportunity to work together in Ivory Coast. He had boundless love for the Jamaat and the promised Messiah He was extremely devoted and very pious he was very generous and would greatly help others. He also looked after children by giving them a place in his home and took on the expenses for their education and other needs. He was always at the forefront in preaching and hospitality was also a notable quality of his. He had an excellent style in preaching and was also very knowledgeable and people would like his style of preaching. Wherever he would hold a sitting for preaching, people would gather around him. He was also regular in his tahajjud prayers and would also experience true dreams. He was a completely selfless individual. Sadiq Jialo Sahib, who is serving as a Muallim in Ivory Coast, writes that Molvi Adris Tero Sahib was wholly devoted to the Jamaat and Khilafat. He was always ready to offer any kind of sacrifice for the sake of the Jamaat. He states that he has never seen anyone in Ivory Coast who loved the Jamaat more than him. And whenever he was asked about his nationality, he would say that I am neither African nor European and I do not have any other nationality. Ahmadiyyad is my nationality and my identity. He was among the pioneer members of the Ahmadiyya Jamaat in Ivory Coast. Basis Sahib, who is serving as a missionary in Ivory Coast, writes that he would always advise others to remain attached with the institution of Khilafat and he would say that whatever he has attained is through Khilafat. He was a very scholarly individual. Apart from his mother tongue, which was Jula, 
He was also proficient in French, Arabic and Urdu. He had great knowledge in Ilmul Kalam and would also engage in debates on this subject and he would often debate with the Wahhabi scholars. An Ahmadi Bhai Abdullah Sahib related an incident during a debate held in San Pedro that when they arrived at the mosque, among the conditions that had been stipulated for the debate was that all the arguments must be presented from the Holy Quran. The debate continuously went on from 8am till 6pm and they only took breaks for prayers. Mulvi Sahib presented such arguments from the Holy Quran to the non-Ahmadi Mulvi that he could not refute them and ultimately accepted defeat. And thus, Ahmadis were granted victory in this debate. He then further writes that he was like a library and when it came to preaching, he would have references memorized. And then, whether in Urdu, Arabic, French or any other language, he would cite those references right away. He always depended on prayers and would encourage others to do the same. He is survived by his wife, four daughters and a son. May Allah the Almighty enable these children to have an active relationship with the Nizam of the community and also make them a part of the Nizam as was their father's desire. They do not have a strong relationship with the community at the moment, but may Allah the Almighty bestow his blessings. And may Allah the Almighty grant the deceased his mercy and forgiveness and elevate his station in paradise. The next funeral is of respected Aminna Naiga Kare Saiba, who was the wife of Muhammad Ali Kare Saib, who is the national president and missionary in charge of the Jamaat in Uganda. She passed away on 20th February. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Surely to Allah we belong and to Him shall we return. The deceased was a humble, well-educated and a brave woman. Her husband, Kare Sahib, said that a big reason for his success as a missionary was his wife. She was Ugandan and was extremely sincere and loyal. He further says that when they got married, she was 19 years of age. At the time, she did not know how to recite the Holy Quran, but because she had an interest and passion, she learned how to recite the Holy Quran and she would try to ponder over its meanings. She was able to serve the community in various capacities and in 2005 she was appointed as the National President of the Women's Auxiliary Organization, i.e. Lajna Imaila. She had a great passion for propagating the message of Islam and Ahmadiyyat and she was also put in jail once or twice on the basis of false charges. She had not been at fault, yet she was wrongly made to go to jail. She was exemplary when it came to moral training and she would very bravely respond to the allegations levelled by non-Ahmadis. Her daughter says that she remained regular in her prayers both in health and in illness, and she would do itqaf every year during the month of Ramadan. She could bear any sort of personal attack made against her, however she could not bear to hear anything negative about the faith. She also worked at various levels in the political forum, the deceased was a Musiya, a member of the al scheme, and she is survived by a husband and six children, of whom two are missionaries. The next funeral is of respected Nuhi Kazakh Sahib of Syria, who passed away on December 10th, 
at the age of 48. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Surely to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. Ahmadiyyat was introduced to his family in 1928 when Hazrat Mulana Jalaluddin Shamsahib went from Damascus to Haifa. The first Ahmadi in Haifa was respected Rashid Bukis Busti Sahib, from whose preaching Ali Saleh Kazakh Sahib, the great-grandfather of the deceased, accepted Ahmadiyyat along with his brother Muhammad Kazakh Sahib, who was the father of Taha Kazakh Sahib, the former president of the Jamaat in Jordan. He accepted Ahmadiyyat along with his family. Afterwards, upon the establishment of Israel, his family migrated to Damascus. The deceased was a very sincere Ahmadi. He was regular in offering prayers and observing fasts, and he was regular in offering financial contributions. He had a great deal of love for Khilafat and was always at the forefront of service to the community. Despite facing financial hardships himself, he always provided financial help to others. He was a very kind and virtuous person, and he survived by two wives and three young daughters. Masim Muhammad Sahib, the Sadr of the Jamaat says, that among his services is that when he would be requested to especially take the sick and the wounded to the hospital, as the circumstances were such in Syria, even in such circumstances he would carry out this task courageously. Likewise, he would take the Amla members on their official tours. He was given a car and would perform his duties with it, and whenever his need was required, he would immediately reach. He would offer his services with great joy and would carry out all his tasks very cheerfully. He was very regular in giving his janda and did even more so in his final year. And he would also financially help other Ahmadis as well. He then further writes that he has left a positive impact on everyone due to his simplicity, quietude, sincerity, service to mankind and his goodwill. The deceased's wife, Khadija Ali Sahiba, says, My husband was very sincere Ahmadi by the grace of Allah. He loved the Jamaat a great deal and really enjoyed helping others. He would help me with the domestic affairs. He had so much love for his daughters and would always be mindful of their good upbringing. He would sit and speak with them for a long time about the Jamaat. By the grace of Allah, he even spent his final year of his life serving the community and he was very pleased about this. His cousin Akram Salman Sahib, who accepted Ahmadiyyat through him, says that even prior to our birth, we were witness to his high morals. His own financial situation was not great, but even still he would help his poor relatives. He further states that something which really impressed me was that he once received a very good job which enabled him to pay off all his debts. Thereafter, instead of saving money, he gave a large sum to my poor aunties and he would say that whilst my health is good and I am not in debt, I am rich and I wish to spend any extra money I have on those in need and this is what one ought to do. This was something that left me so astonished as I had never in my entire life seen such contentment and strength to make financial sacrifices. He then says that he made a lot of effort for my brother and I after we pledged our allegiance for our education, moral training and to remain firmly attached to Khilafat. He would read us very inspiring accounts about those who enjoyed the blessings of Khilafat as a result of which our love for Khilafat increased in our hearts. His brother, Motaz Kazakh Sahib, who is a teacher at Jamia Ahmadiyya Canada, writes, My deceased brother was extremely sincere and had great love for Khilafat. 
Even though our forefathers were Ahmadis, we had no knowledge about Ahmadiyyad. My brother went from the city of Halab to Damascus to attend my grandfather Khidr Khazak's funeral, where he met the other Ahmadis and exchanged views about Ahmadiyyad. Upon his return, I noticed that he began weeping a lot in his prostrations. This sudden change really amazed me, and I inquired as to why this was, and he introduced me to the community. He then says that I did my research. Initially, he was only Ahmadi by name, and then after doing a proper research about the teachings of Ahmadiyyat, and after seeing a dream, I took the oath of allegiance once again. My brother's pious change had a major role to play in my taking of the oath of allegiance. By once again taking the bath, it meant that at first he was only Ahmadi owing to his family, but in practice he was not an Ahmadi. So this is why he took the oath of allegiance once again after attaining an understanding. The deceased had a wonderful zeal for preaching. He prayed profusely for the Khalifa of the time. He was also part of nizam e He was aware of the fact that he was going to pass away soon and mentioned it a few days prior to our mother and to his wife. The next funeral is of Farrat Naseem Saiba from Rabwa. She was the wife of Muhammad Ibrahim Saib Hanif, who was also known as Master Sarjuri Saib. She passed away on 26th December at the age of 86. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Surely to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. Her father was Hazrat Mia Ilam Deen Saib and her grandfather was Hazrat Mia Qutbuddin Saib of Lodi Nangal, Gurdaspur district and was among the companions of the promised Messiah She possessed many good qualities. She was regular in offering prayers and fasting and the tahajjud prayer. She was very patient, grateful, devoted to prayers, simple, caring for the poor, one who had boundless love for Khilafat, and a sincere and pious woman who was at the forefront in taking part in financial schemes. On a number of occasions, she presented her own jewellery for various schemes. She was a Musia and is survived by three sons, three daughters and many grandchildren. And two of her grandchildren are missionaries and one of her sons is a missionary also. May Allah the Almighty grant forgiveness and mercy to the deceased. And may he grant forgiveness and mercy to all the deceased and elevate them in their ranks. Alhamdulillah, Nahmadu, and a stainer, and a stockfellow. When no men obey, and a tobacco, when all the villa, him in Shurian for Sena, women say, Yeah, وَمَنْ يُضْلِلْنُ فَلَا هَادِيَ لَهُ وَنَشْهَدُ اللَّهِ إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهُ وَنَشْهَدُ أَنَّهُ مَذَنَّ أَبْدُوهُ وَرَسُولُهُ إِبَادَ اللَّهِ رَحِمَكُمُ اللَّهُ إِنَّ اللَّهُ يَعْمُرُ بِالْعَدْلِ وَالْنِسَانِ وَيْتَاءِ ذِي الْقُرْبَى 